From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Paloma Beltran. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and we'll start with a look at the potential for solar energy in Puerto Rico. The U.S. Department of Energy, they issued a six-month progress report indicating that Puerto Rico has 20,000 megawatts worth of rooftop solar potential. And that is about six times Puerto Rico's entire energy demand. Also creating resiliency in Puerto Rico's farming sector. Since 2017 that Maria hit in this land, and we've seen how our ecology has changed our community for the better. It's this whole movement of young people trying to take back the land. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Paloma Beltran. And I'm Steve Kerwood. It's now Hispanic Heritage Month, and for a look at part of the Hispanic experience in the U.S., we're starting with the people of Puerto Rico. Though they are U.S. citizens, the three million-plus residents of America's largest colony don't have equal rights. That's right, Steve. They can't vote in general election for president or for voting members of Congress. So islanders have no federal elected officials to hold Washington accountable when disasters strike. Like Hurricane Fiona this year with record rains and Hurricane Maria in 2017 that killed thousands of people. And so far, Washington has done little to update the island's antiquated power grid based on fossil fuels that failed catastrophically in both storms, even though the federal government already has authorized plenty of money to do so. Yes, experts like Ruth Santiago say existing funds could be tapped to meet all of Puerto Rico's energy needs with decentralized renewable energy sources like rooftop solar panels. Ruth Santiago is a community and environmental lawyer, as well as a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And she's on the line now. Ruth, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thank you, Paloma. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Ruth, how are you? Do you have electricity? Yes. I have rooftop solar panels on on my house, and I have batteries and measures that allow me to keep power on. So I had to be very careful the days of the hurricane with energy use because it was very cloudy, of course, lots of rain. But other than that, things have been back to normal. The sun is out very brightly and panels are taking in the energy and storing in the batteries. And unfortunately, my neighbors and most people in Puerto Rico don't, don't have that. And the thing about the power outage and not having power throughout communities is that water supplies also depend many times on electric energy to power pumps or even just generators. And many generators also failed. So that was the generators were like the backup for the electric grid. When the grid went out, that generators were supposed to work to pump water. Mm -hmm. And that failed a lot at the water supply facilities and also at hospitals. And so it's it's been very dangerous for patients, for elderly, for nursing homes, that kind of thing. That's horrible. And a similar situation happened during Hurricane Maria years ago. Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico's power grid and more than 80% of the transmission and distribution system was destroyed. And in that case, repairs took years in some places. What happened during Hurricane Maria and how does it compare to what's going on right now? We sort of need to distinguish. Hurricane Maria was almost a Category 5 hurricane Mm -hmm. and it ripped right through the middle of southeastern Puerto Rico and sort of through the middle and out through the northwest. The Hurricane Fiona, it was actually a tropical storm most of the time that it was sort of skirting the Caribbean Sea just south of southern Puerto Rico and only became a Category 1 hurricane when it entered briefly through southwestern Puerto Rico. So this should not have happened. We should not have had a full blackout here. Because just imagine with every tropical storm or Category 1 hurricane, that has happened almost every other year here. So we haven't had this kind of outage before with this level of a storm. And it's incomprehensible and and 
We think it has to do with lack of vegetation management by Luma Energy and just not having the workforce to really keep up the system. And being, you know, this centralized grid, when one part goes out, often many other parts go out. And all that whole combination of things led to this very extended generalized power outage that we still have not been able to overcome. And after Hurricane Maria, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, designated around $16 billion for energy grid recovery. Where did that money go? What progress has been made on rebuilding the grid over the last five years? Well, not a lot of it has been used. Our understanding is that FEMA has not dispersed. It's allocated and maybe obligated, and this is their terminology, some of the funds, a minimal amount of funds in comparison. But that's still within the U.S. Treasury, right? There's one version that says that FEMA has dispersed $40 million and another one that says $183 million. But in comparison to the $16 billion between FEMA and HUD together, right? That's nothing. It's not been used. And so this actually presents a good opportunity to direct that money towards a more resilient solution rather than rebuilding the centralized grid. And that is the transmission lines and towers and poles that are interconnected and that fail after each storm now. And Puerto Rico imports more than 90% of its energy supply from fossil fuels. But you think there's a better way and advocate for rooftop solar. Can you tell us more about that, please, and the potential that Puerto Rico has for solar energy? Sure. I guess I'll start with the most recent report by the U.S. Department of Energy through their National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL, a couple months ago in the summer. They issued a six-month progress report indicating that Puerto Rico has 20,000 megawatts worth of rooftop solar potential. And that is about six times Puerto Rico's entire energy demand. Because we've had so much sprawling residential and commercial construction here on this very small island and limited geographic area, there's been a lot of build-out. And all those rooftops are suitable and can be used for placing solar panels and coupling those with batteries and providing all of the energy necessary, more than enough energy. Oh, that's a tremendous amount of potential. So, Ruth, you're telling me that the entire island can be powered by the sun? NREL says that. And previous studies have said that. In fact, okay. <laughs> um, more than 10 years ago, the faculty at the University of Puerto Rico at Mayagüez, they were the first to say this. They did what they call the ARET study of Achievable Renewable Energy Target study. And they found that we had multiple times the rooftop solar potential. That was later confirmed in a couple of other studies. And, and the most recent is the NREL study that I, I cited. You'd think that with studies going as far back as 10 years ago, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. Puerto Rico's government would be very interested in expanding the solar potential of the island. Yeah, you would think so. Actually, just recently, the governor made some statements about thinking that, yeah, it might be the time for rooftop solar now. But all of his policies are directed towards doing something totally different, which is just perpetuating, you know, rebuilding this centralized grid. So generating energy far from where it's being consumed, right? And depending on these lines and towers and poles and substations to move that energy long distances and in difficult terrain, mostly from southern Puerto Rico through the Central Mountain Range and the tropical forest into the San Juan metro area, other areas in northern Puerto Rico that most of the energy demand is located. Yeah, we did hear some statements, even from the governor, but his actions, you know, just don't line up with these recent statements. Although we did see a few weeks ago a motion by the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority saying, that if they had any money left over, basically, from the $16 billion that they plan to use to rebuild the centralized grid, that of those $16 billion, they might use $34 million. The first is a B, the second is an M. If it was left over, they would use it for rooftop solar in difficult-to-reach communities. 
So they've pretty much got it backwards in terms of what they're doing, but they're starting to acknowledge the resiliency value, the viability, the life-saving aspects of rooftop solar and energy storage. How much money would be required to fulfill the demand for rooftop solar across Puerto Rico? Well, there's actually a study by an organization here called Cambio PR and the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, AIFA, that they did in last year and found around 10 billion to equip households here and to reach a 75% renewable energy in 15 years, which would now be about 13 years because that was almost two years ago. And Ruth, one of the concerns that I've heard about rooftop solar is that, you know, of course, 155 mile power winds, which is what Maria brought, can easily rip a panel off a roof. How can people prepare for that? Well, the companies that are selling these panels now, and of course, only very high income people can afford them, but they're advertising that they can withstand up to 180 mile an hour winds, much higher than what we've experienced so far, fortunately. So these panels are anchored on pretty well. So that that's one thing. I mean, the real damage that these panels sometimes experience are not so much that they fly away or they get torn off by the hurricane force winds, but that they get impacted by flying objects. And so you could lose one or a couple of panels that way, but usually you have many more than that on your rooftop, right? So you can basically eliminate the one that's been damaged from the system and keep functioning, right? And the panels are really the cheapest part of the whole system, right? The, the batteries and the inverters, that's the more expensive equipment that wouldn't be on, on a rooftop and not exposed to hurricane force winds. And another thing is there are actually groups here that have taught people how to remove panels from their rooftops and take them down during hurricanes and then put them back up pretty quickly. They do drills that take, I think, about half an hour or so. So there are a few options there to protect rooftop solar systems. What would a Puerto Rico with a decentralized solar system with solar panels on every rooftop look like? How transformative would that be for the island? Well, I think in addition to the life-saving aspects, it would have huge economic benefit, right? Because right now we're basically exporting around a billion dollars. Well, with the price of oil and gas now, um, it's probably a lot more. We're exporting a lot of money outside the Puerto Rico economy. It has no multiplier effect. No local contractors are benefiting from buying fuel oil and, you know, burning it at the plants here. So the social, the medical, the economic aspects or benefits of rooftop solar are many and cut across the whole society. What can the Biden administration do to transform Puerto Rico's grid and help build a more resilient system? Well, so the Biden administration and specifically FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has already allocated this historic amount of $16 billion when you include the HUD matching share. And so that would be more than enough to equip households and businesses and institutions with rooftop solar or microgrids, right? So High-rise buildings would need microgrid types of uh, solar installations where nearby rooftops or parking lots or, you know, adjacent areas are used to site these panels. And the FEMA funding can be used as financing for that and transform the grid and cut the dependence on the imports and the fossil fuels and the burning and the public health impacts of burning those fossil fuels, especially to nearby communities that are overburdened by these power plants. We're actually at a point where we're awaiting a decision from FEMA on sort of what kind of environmental analysis they will do for the funding to rebuild the exact same grid or whether they will do a more comprehensive environmental analysis, like an environmental impact statement, to consider the impacts that rebuilding would have, and then to consider a reasonable alternative, such as rooftop solar, distributed renewables, batteries, that kind of thing. So 
we're sort of awaiting that kind of decision from the Biden administration right now. Ruth Santiago is a community and environmental lawyer, as well as a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. Thank you, Paloma. The hard life of low wages and grueling work for Hispanic farm laborers. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Living on Earth podcast comes from IM Bio. Where do biotechnology, politics, patients, and our planet all intersect? Find out by listening to the IM Bio podcast. Hosted by Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. I Am Bio brings you powerful stories of biotech breakthroughs. Discover the biggest threats to our planet's water supply, new vaccine technologies, the latest Alzheimer's research findings, and more. Subscribe to I Am Bio wherever you get your podcasts. If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks. It's Living on Earth. I'm Paloma Beltran. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The Hispanic experience in the United States has not been an easy one. At the end of the Mexican-American War in 1848, Mexico had to cede California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Utah, as well as parts of Wyoming, Colorado, and Arizona, to the United States. The U.S. had already annexed Texas three years earlier. And in 1898, at the end of the Spanish-American War, Spain granted Cuba independence and ceded the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico to the U.S., the Philippines resisted American occupation and ultimately won independence, but Guam and Puerto Rico have remained U.S. colonies. So, as part of the spoils of war, many Spanish-speaking peoples in the U.S. have often been regarded as second-class citizens. In the case of Guam and Puerto Rico, they have U.S. citizenship but limited voting rights. And the presence of Mexicans in the U.S. comes with resentments and suspicions that have yet to be fully resolved. So when President Trump was seen throwing paper towels to survivors of Hurricane Maria in Guaynabo, Puerto Rico in 2017, it was widely seen as disrespectful and insensitive. But even with a new president, much promised aid has yet to be delivered five years later. In his visit to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona, President Biden tried to strike a more responsive tone, starting by acknowledging what island residents are going through. For days, people... People live without power, without water, some still in that circumstance. No idea when to be back again. And for everyone, everyone who survived Maria Fiona must have been an all-too-familiar nightmare. President Biden spoke as a compassionate consoler-in-chief. The people of Puerto Rico keep getting back up with resilience and determination. Quite frankly, it's pretty extraordinary when you look at it from afar. And you deserve every bit of help your country can give you. That's what I'm determined to do, and that's what I promise. But the people in Puerto Rico have heard many promises before, only to have them broken. Though President Biden did make it clear he is taking responsibility. After Maria, Congress approved billions of dollars for Puerto Rico, much of it not having gotten here initially. We're going to make sure you get every single dollar promised. And I'm determined to help Puerto Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future. But the people on the island can't make President Biden keep his promises, since they don't have a vote and the future is unclear. Like the Philippines, Puerto Rico residents could seek some form of independence, a view most participants in status referenda have rejected. Or they could gain equal status with almost all other Americans by becoming a state. 
They would then have senators, full-fledged members of Congress, and electoral votes for president. At times, statehood has generally gotten the most referendum votes, but many Puerto Ricans also say they are content to keep things the way they've been for the last 124 years. And should the request for statehood be made, it's unclear a congressional majority would admit Puerto Rico into the union. The history of second-class citizenship for Hispanics is reflected in the present treatment of farm workers in the U.S., nearly three-quarters of whom are from Spanish-speaking countries like Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. They are the backbone of industrial agriculture here. For sure. That's a trillion-dollar industry that feeds the country. But farm workers are often treated as disposable assets, routinely exposed to toxic chemicals, extreme heat, and poor air quality. Yeah, Paloma, sounds like it's such a dangerous job. It really is, Steve. So, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, I wanted to take a closer look at how farm workers are treated in the U.S. and how that might change. I started with a man we've had on the show a few times in the past. Jesus is originally from Mexico, and he's been working on American farms for more than 20 years. Since he doesn't have citizenship or a visa, in the past, he's had to cross the border illegally through the desert several times to see his family. He says that in the desert, high temperatures can be deadly. A lot of people die. They may faint and die from dehydration. And it's sad because in the desert, no one hears you. Jesus has been an agricultural worker for 22 years. He's currently working picking tomatoes in California and hasn't seen his family in 12 years. Farm workers like Jesus are mainly responsible for harvesting crops as well as processing and packing before sale. Contrary to farm owners, they have no stake in the business. They're hired hands. Without them, an enormous amount of food would rot in the fields. And hiring enough workers is a growing challenge. It's backbreaking, dangerous work and becoming even more hazardous with climate change. 21 days of the U.S. growing season are considered unsafe because of extreme heat. And that's only expected to increase in the coming years, according to Stanford University research scientist Michelle Tichelet. In our study, we found that by the middle of the century, we expect that the number of unsafe working days for farm workers will double compared to what it is now. And it might triple by the end of the century if our carbon emissions continue on the pathway that they're on. California is an agricultural hotspot, home to nearly half of all fruits, nuts, and vegetables produced in the U.S. California is also particularly vulnerable to heat waves and wildfires. And smoky air can be hazardous for workers harvesting apples, asparagus, and avocado that ripen in wildfire season. Clarachine is a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, studying the impacts of wildfire smoke on the health of farm workers in Napa and Sonoma County, California's wine country. We found that during the 2020 growing season, one out of every 12 working hours took place under air quality conditions that were considered to be unhealthy by the U.S. EPA. Wildfire smoke is a toxic brew of fine particulates, ground-level ozone, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and carbon monoxide. We do know that increased levels of particulate pollution from wildfire smoke and other sources, it can lead to all sorts of respiratory diseases, cardiovascular diseases, increased rates of mortality, and also particulate pollution has been linked to increases in the spread and the mortality rate of COVID-19. COVID-19 disproportionately impacts farm workers due to their working conditions and exacerbates their sort of pre-existing social vulnerabilities. Farm workers are also highly exposed to pesticides, toxic chemicals used in industrial agriculture, says Ricardo Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We and others have done research that documents that actually the susceptibility of farm workers 
two pesticides in the field increases with external temperature. And so these two things working combined are only going to make things more precarious for the very people without whom the food system would not work. The daily grind of working in extreme heat with unsafe air and chemical exposure is bad enough. But farm workers are also often unprotected from extreme climate events like Hurricane Ian, which recently tore through Florida and the Carolinas. Florida has an $8 billion agricultural economy. It's the country's top citrus producer and second largest vegetable producer. Thousands of migrant workers in Florida are responsible for our morning orange juice. But when disaster strikes, they are left to their own devices, says the executive director of Farm Workers Association of Florida, Nessa Wichstekutli. Farm workers, because many of them are undocumented, they do not qualify for federal assistance. So they live in, in kind of a low-lying, vulnerable areas. If a hurricane or any kind of tropical storm hits, there are some of the communities most affected. Uh, not qualifying for federal aid, they, they just don't really have anybody to turn to. Often they also get displaced, having to go somewhere else um, to, to find a place to live or a place to work. Estela Martinez is a farm worker based in Florida who's lost work due to Hurricane Ian. She says that farm workers live paycheck to paycheck, and it's not uncommon for money to run out, especially when hurricanes or heavy rains hit leaving them without work. Despite the dangers of their work, farm workers are poorly paid. Farm workers in California and Florida make less than $30,000 per year compared to the average U.S. worker, who makes roughly $54,000 annually. Many farm workers work on a piece rate. They're paid based on how much they harvest, which Nessa says discourages them from taking breaks, even in extreme heat. We were asking some workers to take some breaks, some water breaks, and many of them would say no, because, you know, the moment I stop working, the person next to me is going to be picking what I would be picking. So in essence, they're competing against their own co-workers. Uh, so that creates the mental barrier to uh, workers taking care of their own bodies. Exploitation of farm workers isn't a new idea. And slave people, both Native Americans and African Americans, were the first farm workers. Even after slavery was abolished, farm workers were omitted from major U.S. labor reforms, like the National Labor Relations Act, passed during the Great Depression. It established rights for workers, like collective bargaining, unionization, overtime pay, worker compensation, and child labor laws. But farm workers were purposefully excluded from the new law, a decision rooted in racism, says Caspar Rivera Salgado, the director of the UCLA Center for Mexican Studies. He was excluded because it was uh, the politics of that era. FDR needed the National Labor Relations Act to be enacted, and uh, Southern Democrats controlled the Senate. And they demanded that domestic workers and farm workers be excluded. At that time, close to 75%, 80% of farm workers and domestic workers were African-Americans in the South. So clearly... The racism that persisted at that time was translated into the curtailing of these rights for farm workers. That racism in agriculture started to include Hispanics after World War II. With the decline of European migration to the United States, growers lobbied for a guest worker program. The Bracero program temporarily allowed more than 70,000 Mexican workers into the U.S., Workers that toil the fields amid a legacy of slavery and racism, says Salvador. There is an entire division, you know, of occupational safety and health uh, in the law that takes care of those of us that are uh, office workers, you know, white-collar workers, have, uh, you know, healthy, safe conditions that we can work in. And yet people that work in one of the most hazardous environments that there is don't have anything like that. Even children of farm workers are not afforded basic protections. There are exemptions in labor law that make it okay for children of farm workers, ages, say, as young as 12, to be legally in the field performing work with their families. You know, they, those kids should be in school. 
But if you're the child of a farm worker, it's legal for those children to be out in the field. So we know exactly what we're doing, and we know exactly whom we're doing it to. It took 30 years, but ultimately thousands of farm workers and activists like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta formed the industry's first union, the United Farm Workers, in 1962. Protesters marched 300 miles from Delano, California, to the state's capital in Sacramento. That coincided with the biggest great boycott in history and many other peaceful protests. Farmworker unions seemed promising, but never included more than 2% of workers. A lot of factors made it tough to organize. Farmworkers are often difficult to reach because they work in remote locations. Many are seasonal, meaning they follow the harvest and travel across the country throughout the year. And they often live in housing that is owned and controlled by employers. Teresa Romero, president of the United Farm Workers, says that leads to intimidation. Farm workers right now, to work for union representation, there's only way to do it, and it is at, in the premises of the employer, which intimidates farm workers. Uh, farm workers, when they start organizing, um, are, are fired. When they file a lawsuit, then the attorneys call immigration. Roughly half of all farm workers lack papers to work here legally or have a temporary immigration visa that their employer controls. Starting in 2019, the House twice passed measures that could ease farm workers' path to legalization, but the attempts have failed in the Senate. In 2021, California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a measure that would have made it easier for farm workers to vote by mail to unionize. So in August of 2022, hundreds of farm workers repeated the 1962 march from Delano to Sacramento in sweltering heat to demand he sign a similar bill into law. Every single one of you, your voices are so strong and powerful. You need to let this governor know that he needs to sign this bill. At the end of September, Governor Newsom finally signed the measure. It expands options for farm workers to unionize through a vote-by-mail process or through ballot cards that can be dropped off at the state's Agricultural Labor Relations Board. The law goes into effect in January 2023, and supporters are citing it as a major milestone in the movement for farm worker rights. Coming up, young people in Puerto Rico are starting a revolution through farming. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, SmeagolGuide.org. Let's talk about setting the mood. That's right, the mood. You know, when you want to get intimate, be it by yourself or with a partner, there is something you need to have on your nightstand. Maud, a female-led Latinx company founded by Eva Goegochea, and created for all bodies, genders, and races. Maud is redefining what sexual wellness and modern intimacy looks like, creating the next chapter in the sexual wellness industry. Maud makes modern, body-safe, high-quality essentials for before, during, and after sex. A whole variety of products like vibrators, lubricants, and massage candles. The products are absolutely beautiful, with a lot of attention paid to design, sustainability, and inclusivity. If sexual wellness had a name, it would be Maud. Get 15% off your first order using the code LIVINGEARTH. Go to getmod.com slash livingearth. That's getmaude.com slash livingearth. You deserve a night in. It's Living on Earth. I'm Paloma Beltran. And I'm Steve Kerwood. At the top of this special program marking Hispanic Heritage Month, we talked about greening Puerto Rico's electric grid for more resiliency. Now we turn to look at the movement to bring more harmony with nature in farming on the island. Its tropical location makes Puerto Rico well-suited for nearly year-round growing, Paloma. Right, Steve. 
Agribusiness has exploited that advantage for decades, but average Puerto Ricans have little to show for it. Nearly half of adults have incomes below the poverty line, and most children are classified as poor. Yet, as much as 85% of food is imported to the island, making it expensive. And roughly a third of the island residents receive nutrition assistance through PAN, a Puerto Rican version of the program once called food stamps. And disasters like Hurricane Maria in 2017 destroyed most of local crops and left communities isolated without supplies for weeks and months. Exactly. But a growing number of young Puerto Ricans are working to take advantage of a year-round ability to grow food and reclaim the land, as well as their ancestral Taino ways of farming for self-sufficiency. One of them is a technique of agroecology, which applies ecological concepts to farming and mimics the way nature works. Well, that sounds much more sustainable than importing a lot of inputs like expensive fertilizers and pesticides. Right, that's the idea. And to learn more, I reached out to Stephanie Monserrate Torres. She and a partner started Guaquia Colectivo Agroecológico in 2016. It's a farm located in the Dorado region near San Juan. Stephanie joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you. Well, what are the basic principles of agroecology? How is it different from conventional farming? So in agroecology, we work in harmony with nature. And for us, when we arrive to the land, the land basically dictates to us what it needs. We don't say we want to farm, we want to grow some carrots, and that's what we grow. We see what is the land telling us to grow, how to grow it. We've seen our type of land. It really likes trees and it's because it doesn't have any type of tree. So we've started to integrate some agroforestry practices as well within our agroecology. Uh, so we could have more like a food forest that it could be self-sustainable and we're only like the land keepers. We're there for intervene the less we can. In in another way, it also tends not only for the land, it also tends for all living things, not only us as the landowners or caretakers, but also in recognizing we're not machines and we need to take breaks and we need to acknowledge ourselves as human beings, our community, and every living thing in the farm, in our land. Why do you think agroecology and, and agroforestry in particular is a good idea for Puerto Rico? Well, we've seen how the hurricanes, how climate change have been affecting us. I think it's the most sustainable and the most nurturing way to treat the land. But at the same time, the practices we are having not only make the land better, but help us in times of like a hurricane comes. I don't have only one type of harvest that I'm going to lose. I have an abundance of diversity that I can depend on. So let's think, I have in my farm a lot of trees, right? But in the lower layer, I maybe have sweet potatoes and some herbs growing and some sweet peppers and some tomatoes. And that's all being protected by the trees. And then all their stuff are being protected by the soil, by the land. So I have all this diversity that I don't lose everything in one climate change and one disaster. So I, it's better for me to build myself back up again and to provide for my community and my families and for myself. Yeah, that, that sounds like perfect harmony. Exactly. It's a lot of small details to think about, but it makes sense. A forest is already self-sustainable. So that's what we're trying to imitate, but with food. I understand that you started the project a few months before Hurricane Maria hit. Correct. How did that impact your goals and your community? Well, it changed everything. It changed all our plans because we thought we were going to start farming and then the community would come for us. But it was backwards. We had to go to the community first and then farming because the emergency was too much for us to think of something else other than helping the community. And everyone was like, that's not, not only us. That's Puerto Ricans. We look out for each other. So we met two elderly women, like talking in an abandoned house. And 
we started to talk to them and see what we could do. And we came up with the idea to make like this, the soup stone. So everybody brought something and we will make a big soup and everybody would eat. And with the next thing everybody brought, we will make the next one. And that's how we started to get to know each other and make this relationship we had. And we started to do a composting program because people were really excited about what we were doing, how could they contribute. And we thought, well, let's do a composting program. So every Friday we will go and look for the compost and their organic things from the kitchen. And it became like a competitive thing for them to see who <laughs> had the more compost. Because we also made exchange with them sometimes like, oh, we'll give them some pumpkins or we'll give them compost so they could use in their gardens. So we started to have weekly meetings every Saturday with the community. They made a census. They wanted to do movie nights. And we said, okay, so we need a projector. We need this. So everybody took stuff from their house that they needed need. And we did a pulguero. So we sold stuff in the park to get the money, like a garage sale, mm -hmm. basically, but a, a community sale because everybody brought everything. And we just gave flyers all around Dorado, the municipality, and people came. And that's why they have a projector for the community and started to do movie nights. So it's been like that little thing that did this big impact, just walking and to see and to meet everyone and create a relationship. As I understand it, you see your work in farming as an act of rebellion or an act of protest. Why is that? Well, I think in a place in an archipelago that people are trying to take our land and trying to make us move away from our land, and especially in the municipality that we are in Dorado, which is curated for tourists, it's hotels, it's uh, Airbnbs, and then you see the duality of low-income communities, but in this mansions, people getting in their homes in helicopters, but then in the next street, there's people living in their cars because the Hurricane Maria people haven't had their house yet, or they still don't have water, or not only those essentials, but food, restaurants, and places that are like basic for people in some cities or what would you need nearby, it's not accessible for them because they're already all curated for the tourist. So I think what we do in this place that we're doing it says a lot. And we've been asked to leave. When we started our municipality, uh, Arcalde, that's how we call, they asked us to leave for like this agroecology touristic park they had. But when we talked to the community, our neighbor community, and we proposed to them, this is what they're saying. What do you guys think? And they said, no, your work is here with us in this community. And so we stayed. It seems like you're welcome in the community. Yes. And that's what we want. You know, Stephanie, historically, the main products that were encouraged by the U.S. after colonization were things like tobacco and, and sugar. Mm -hmm. and. These products aren't really meant to nurture people substantially, mm -hmm. but you focus on a wide range of produce, like a lot of fruits and different vegetables. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes, we've been trying to grow a lot of things, but not only to grow, but also how to make these things. But one of the things we've seen is that sometimes we grow cassava, mm -hmm. but my generation doesn't know how to use it. Or doesn't know how to peel it. It sounds like a lot of the practices of cooking food have been lost. Have been lost. Yes. Have been lost a lot. Everything's already pre-made everywhere. The generation of my parents, it was also fast foods. And everything pre-made. Like my mom, would, I remember, would buy hamburgers that I would just put in a microwave. And that's how I would eat it. So everything was already pre-made. And... Nothing was like I had to let alone grow it, but <laughs> how I would have to buy it like already peeled because you can go to the supermarkets and you can see you can buy every root vegetable already peeled. Mm -hmm. And I remember that my grandfather was a farmer and he was like taken out of the lands to like 
to work in the industry in here in San Juan, in the city, to make the business and the factories and started to work. And when I told my dad that I wanted to be a farmer, he was like, no, I was taken out of that for the better life. And you're coming back to it. And I think that's what's really happening right now. It's this whole movement of young people trying to take back the land and rescue all that knowledge we lost. Because there's a big gap in age from our grandmothers and grandfathers and our parents that lost all that. And we're starting to lose that people and that knowledge and that education of how we, we used to do things. And also something that we've been learning or relearning as a culture is that if you make things from scratch, there's a lot of things you get from what you're not using. So you can compost your peels, right? Yeah. Or you can make a tea to use for your garden to add nutrition to your plants. There's so many things we could do, or sometimes it's even like a medicine. It could be like a tea or it could be brewed for a headache or for a tea. When I talk to my grandmother and she tells me, no, don't, don't throw that away because that could work for this or put that on the fridge. And when you like my grandmother, no top of any vegetable was going to go away because that was going to be the vegetable broth. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like everything, when you do it from scratch and we start to look at everything as a resource or as something with value, there's no way you're throwing it th that away. And I think I really got that with agroecologies because we really value everything in every step because it takes so long and so much effort. And that's only in the type of agriculture I do, not I'm not even touching base with how our government makes it so much harder for us to make things happen. So I think everything is like a value or maybe not for me, but for somebody else who needs it. What were some of the challenges in starting Guakia? Well, we're still in a challenge. There's some permits that would help us access funds or have discounts in products for us being a company organization, mm -hmm. but because of the bureaucracy and because of the negligencia of the government, we haven't been able to have that those permits that help us be better. There's big farms that because of the contracts and the type of contracts they have, they get discounts for water when I'm not even able to have access to water in my small farm. So it's those type of things that makes it so hard for me to be a farmer because I have to be so much time out of the farm going from office to office and looking for people to help me have those permits and it's impossible. So that's like one of the little things we have here that it, it makes us, it makes it crazy. I think it takes a lot of courage to start a project like Guakia. It takes a lot of organization, financial planning, and honestly, grit, you know, like cojones. Um, <laughs> sí. Me encanta. What makes you proud of your work and what inspires you to keep on going? So I think first talking about the communities I've seen I've like we've been basically since 2017 that Maria hit in this land and we've seen how doing agroecology, doing the thing we believe in has changed our community for the better. How we're growing, like you said, together, right? Not only as individuals and but as a collective, not me and Marisa as a collective, but the whole community as a collective. We've seen how we have this, we call him, he's like the uncle, but he he's a neighbor that has like maybe like 70 acres of farm and he grows in a monoculture way. Mm -hmm. We don't avoid monoculture farmers. We talk and I think that's when they see what we're doing, they're like curious and that's what happened with him. He saw and he, he thought we were the crazy kid <laughs> doing stuff. And then we would find him coming to the farm with people so they could see the type of stuff we're doing because they couldn't believe that pumpkin and beans 
and corn will do like that well. And that's an ancestral way of growing these things. It's called Las Tres Hermanas, the Three Sisters. So when he saw that, he was like, what? And he came weeks ago to take a workshop in our farm. The uncle that's supposed to be teaching us, he came to our farm to take agroecology practices to his monoculture farm. So you see that change. It's those little things that make like big movements. And those are the ones we see. But I know that people talk, like the neighbors talk. Y la muchachita es loca. And what they're doing <laughs> there. And como están allí en el sol. Ah, pues ellas son una brava. And how they start to think about us and women. And that's something else we've seen also. Like when we have our volunteers that this year have been mostly women, we've seen how they're like, oh my God, it's you, you and Marisa only, like just you guys. And this is your farm. You're not working for any men because typically a man is the owner or like the head of the farm. And then he has his little woman workers. So no, it's us. It's our farm and we do the heavy things. So you have to do it as well. And you're not going to leave this farm until you get the trimmer and you do the things that any man would do because we can do it. And we've seen how they started to like, maybe like, oh, I could work on a farm and maybe volunteer and maybe do something else. But now I can have my own farm and I could provide for my family or I could do something else that's related. I don't have to work for anybody else. Mm -hmm. So I think those are like the subtle things that we've seen that are making change. Stephanie Monserrate, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Chloe Chen, Iris Chen, Josh Kroom, Jenny Doring, Delaney Dreyfus, Mark Kausch, Kuka Coffee, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitas, Jake Rigo, Ashley Sobroto, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and like us please on our Facebook page Living on Earth We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio I'm Paloma Beltran And I'm Steve Kerwood Thanks for listening Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners and from the University of Massachusetts Boston in association with its School for the Environment developing the next generation of environmental leaders and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.